All right, so I'm going to start by reading the text, and then we'll get going from there. So the text today is from Hebrews 13, 7 through 16. When you're there, say there. I've always wanted to say that. All right, so uh, starting in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, a few years ago, I moved to the city of Amman in Jordan for six short weeks as a part of a missionary internship program. It was a time to experience daily life in a different culture and in a missionary context, discerning the Lord's will for the rest of my life. I have aspired to missions, I have yearned for that, and God has put that on my heart, but it was the first chance, the first opportunity to actually experience what it's like to be in a different context, a different culture. So I had felt drawn specifically to the Middle East previously, but it was my first time actually there. So I was taking a leap of faith, and I put myself in an unfamiliar situation, and I would see if I would thrive there, if the Lord would be faithful in my life in this way to confirm a calling that I had discerned previously. So you may not know this, but Amman in Jordan, the capital, is considered a western city by many Jordanians. But let me tell you, you wouldn't think that when you stepped off the plane. The clothing, the smells, the sights, and especially the language were so contrary to anything I had experienced in my life up to this point. So I had become a temporary citizen in an alien city, and I needed to learn how to live there. So I attended an Arabic school, and I was taught survival Arabic, which is basically what you need to learn to get a taxi, to order food, to ask where the bathroom is, and most importantly, to ask, do you speak English in Arabic? So I had to learn how to behave in the city as well as just speak the language. So I had to learn how to make constant eye contact with men as I walked down the street so they wouldn't catcall the women who were walking alongside me. I had to learn to sit with my feet not facing anybody because that is a deep insult in that culture. And I had to learn to drink Arabic coffee. That one I learned the hard way. So if you don't know, Arabic coffee is finely ground coffee beans that are boiled in water and then sludged with a lot of sugar. And all that's put into a very special cup and handed to you. So as you might imagine, a thick sludge of coffee grounds and sugar condenses at the bottom of the cup. 
So in an effort to appear grateful to the Syrian refugee family who had welcomed me into their home and offered me coffee, I drank the entire cup. <laughs> Including the thick sludge at the bottom. A teammate told me later that you're supposed to leave the sludge at the bottom and finish your drink there. Of course, he didn't tell me that until after I had made a complete fool of myself. So when visiting a new city, you have to learn the ways to live in that city, how to get along with its residents, and how to follow the rules that may or may not be actually spoken out loud, but they're held by all the residents of that city. Drawing from our text today, Hebrews 13:14 says that, for here we have no lasting city, but seek the city that is to come. So how do we, in this case as Americans, as 21st century people who live in the Western culture, how do we live as citizens of the city of God that is to come? How do we live set apart from this world that we've been born into and that pressures us to fit in constantly? How do we seek the city? One way to live set apart and to seek the city is to imitate and obey the godly leaders that have been placed in our lives before us. So I've grouped the first two parts of the passage today together, verses 7 and 8 and verse 17, together because they complement each other. They're bookends for the passage. So I'll read the two right now again. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So first, I want to take a quick step back and address who these leaders are that these verses are mentioning. Who are they? Well, if you turn back to chapter 11 of Hebrews, that's called by many people the Hall of Faith. Um, it's an account of believer after believer in the Jewish faith who evidenced and show faith and that was credited to them as righteousness. You don't have to turn back there because we could read that all day, but I'll quote a couple of verses from it. So in verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And then verse 7, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 8 and 9. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So like I said, I could go on reading the entire chapter, giving evidence of faith and leaders who went before us. These, passage, these passages are about the past heroes of the faith who were deeply flawed and yet could live by faith and be found as righteous by that faith. And that is so encouraging to me. Hopefully it is to you too. Genesis 15.6 reminds us that Abraham's faith is counted to him as righteousness, where it says, and he believed the Lord, and he, being God, counted it to him as righteousness. So 
going back to chapter 13, some of the leaders that this text is referring to are the biblical leaders of the faith. Is that just everyone who's being referred to here? No. Let's go to the next verse. Specifically, verse 8 of chapter 13. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So you may be asking, why is that there? It seems kind of out of nowhere, right? We're talking about the leaders, remembering them, and then all of a sudden we're talking about Jesus. So why? Well, hopefully you know the answer to this. Who is our leader in the faith? Jesus. And who is faithful across all of time? Not us, but Jesus. Jesus is eternal. He's present in the past leaders of yesterday. He's present in the leaders we have today. And he's present in the leaders that will come in the years, decades, centuries, and millennia in the future, or until the Lord comes again. So we're included in that time span of yesterday, today, and forever. The leaders whose faith and way of life that we are supposed to imitate includes more than just those mentioned in Hebrews 11 or in the Bible itself. We have so many more leaders now, 2,000 years later, that we can learn from. So this is one of the action points from today's sermon. Uh, You can walk home and remember this is one of the things you can practically do. Have you ever read the biography of a missionary or a pastor? So currently, I'm reading through John Piper's Swans Are Not Silent series, which is a collection of biographies of Christian leaders in the centuries and millennia since Christ. I highly recommend it. I've gotten through Augustine, Luther, and Calvin so far, and each one has been such an encouragement to me and a challenge in my walk with the Lord. Piper says in another book of his, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, that's the name of the book, concerning Hebrews 11 and quoting other parts of Hebrews, he says, The unmistakable implication of this chapter, chapter 11 and 13, is that if we hear about the faith of our forefathers and mothers— we will lay aside every weight and sin and run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's Hebrews 12.1. If we asked the author, how should we stir one up and another to love and good works, which is from Hebrews 10, his answer would be, through encouragement from the living and the dead, which is Hebrews 10.25 and 11.1-40. Christian biography is the means by which the body life of the church cuts across centuries. So, read the Bible, learn from the leaders there, and also learn from the believers today and in the millennia and centuries past. That is one way that we seek the city. We follow the leaders who have come before us, and we imitate their lives. So we're commanded to learn from today's leaders as well, just as Jesus is the same today. So surround yourself with the people who you look up to and who live gospel-prioritized lives. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but a saying goes that you, are, you become like your five closest friends. So I challenge you, who are those five closest friends? Are they people that you want to be more like, who are going to pull you closer to Jesus? Or are they people who are going to waylay you or get you concerned with the cares of the world? Be pulled upwards, not downwards, by your friendships. Follow leaders also who pull you upwards. And then we get to verse 17. How do your leaders pull you upwards? I'll read 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So as we pursue Christ and what he told us to do, 
we're not alone. The Lord has put people in authority over us, and that's a blessing, not an obstacle. We're supposed to submit to the leadership of those in authority over us, and specifically the leaders in the faith. I want to remind you, believer, that God has put these people over you to help nourish you in your walk with the Lord. So you have to obey them when they challenge you or when they ask things of you. You must trust in the Lord, in the leaders he's placed over you. I get to say that because I'm not a pastor here. I mean, it might be a little weird if Chris came up here and said, you have to obey me. I mean, yes, that's biblical, but you can be skeptical of an ulterior motive, right? But hopefully you can hear it from me. And remember, there's a weightier burden placed upon leaders and teachers. Coming from James 3, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There is a call and there's a burden upon leaders and teachers. So remember that when they fail, when they fall short, they are being held accountable to God. And yes, we do have to hold leaders accountable if there's abuse, if there's um, improper teaching, if there's improper character or procedure. But remember that God holds them accountable as well. So we're supposed to obey our leaders, but in a way that gives them joy, not groaning. So be easy to teach. Be joyful in your service. And they will point you towards the gospel and obedience in the Lord. One thing I want to call out here is that we should be different from the world around us. As we seek the city, we are different from the people around us who live in the city that is here. I'm sure you've noticed it, especially over the last few years, of the rise of cancel culture. And sometimes that is appropriate when someone is so disqualified from leadership, from ministry, or other areas of life that they can no longer be an authority for us. But remember that one insensitive tweet can, in this culture, destroy your reputation, career, family, and safety. We live in a culture that constantly cancels people and destroys their lives. But we are not to do that. We are to follow and imitate the leaders that God has put in our lives. And since they are not Jesus, though Jesus is in them, they will fail us. They will fall short. They will sin against us. And in those times, what are we to do? Are we supposed to walk away, find another church? No, we are supposed to extend grace. We are supposed to follow them anyway, trusting in the Lord to lead them as he leads us. Like I said, don't tolerate abuse, but tolerate failure. Tolerate failure in your leaders as you seek the city because that will be to the glory of Jesus as a witness to outsiders, and it will be good for your soul. Follow and imitate your leaders, both in the Bible, in history, and in today. Next, I want to draw our attention to verses 9 through 14. I'll read them again. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. So a little bit of context, if you don't know, 
there was a subset of Christians going around saying that Jewish laws needed to be followed in order to be a true follower of Christ. They kept all the old laws, feasts, and rites that were laid out in the Old Testament. And they insisted believers who were Gentiles from a non-Jewish background follow the same rites, procedures, and laws. But I want to remind you, as the verse in the passage today says, we don't get our spiritual strength or salvation from physical food or rites or laws. We rely upon God's grace for salvation. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Amen. So to understand these verses, you need to understand that the old sacrificial system was set up when God led the Israelites through an exodus out of Egypt by Moses. It's recorded in the book of Exodus. And then the book after, Leviticus, is a long list of specific rites, apparel, feasts, and behaviors that the people of Israel, and especially the priests descended from the person of Levi, had to follow in order to be holy. There were some sacrifices that were given to the Lord out of worship, abundance, or gratitude. And we'll touch on those sacrifices later on. But first, we're going to talk about the sin sacrifices that had to be made constantly. The sacrificial system was set up by the Lord in order to sanctify or make clean the people of Israel temporarily from their sins. This system is specifically set out in Leviticus 4. Don't worry, I'm not going to read it. So some of the blood would be sprinkled by the priest in the holy place, and then a burnt offering would be offered up on an altar to the Lord. Then every other part of the body would be carried outside the camp or Jerusalem, depending if you were in the tabernacle or the temple, and then burned completely. In those other sacrifices, in the gift, sacrificing the abundance, the free will offering, the fat, the liver, and other parts of the body would be burned in a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then the priests, the Levites, they had a claim on the rest of the body to eat for their nourishment. But the sin offering was not that. This sacrifice, this sin offering that Jesus gave, is doubly unavailable to the priests of Levi and to the people of Israel. First, because it was a sin offering, and the sin offering was not something that the people who were in the law could partake in. And secondly, the people who denied Christ, who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, they denied and declined the sin sacrifice that was made by Jesus. And Jesus replaced the old sin offerings, the offerings from the Old Testament covenant. In he, for example, in Hebrews 9, 13, and 14, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered with himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So since we, as followers of Jesus, have had the same old covenant replaced by the new, we have salvation through Jesus Christ. We don't have sanctification. We don't have redemption through the sin offerings. We have it through Christ. And he's the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. No longer do we live according to the old traditions, according to the old rites and feasts and cultures of the old covenant. Verse 14 so succinctly puts it by saying, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
The Israel of the Old Covenant and the Hebrew Christians written to here had the city of Jerusalem as their holy city. But we don't have that city as our own heritage. We await the city that is to come. It's described in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 10 and 11, as, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So I just want to point out that this is not the same city that is in Israel today, in Palestine, whatever you want to say. This is an eternal, new creation city, a city that we seek that is to come. And again, I want to point out that we don't get our identity or citizenship from an earthly city or nation. It's kind of funny that I'm preaching this on 4th of July weekend, and I didn't intend that. Um, so we, in one sense, we are citizens of the nation that we live in. We're supposed to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In Daniel and other parts of the Old Testament, we're supposed to seek the welfare of our country. But at the same time, we are not ultimately citizens of the United States. We are not ultimately citizens of this world. We are citizens of the city that is to come. And so we will be different from the city that is here. We imitate our leaders and we expect to be outcast. For the city of it that is to come, we are promised that we will be rejected by the world and scorned by it because of the very fact that we follow Jesus. So to seek the city, we imitate our leaders and we expect and embrace the citylessness of following Jesus. You, believer, will be an outcast. But we are outcasts with the righteousness that brings joy to us and the glory to the Lord. So expect that. Finally, let's read verses 15 and 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So remember the sacrifices that I had mentioned earlier? Like I said, there was more than just sin and atonement sacrifices. There was free will offering, there was worship, there was praise sacrifices. But Hebrews tells us that the old sacrifices, the slaughtering of bulls and lambs and goats and pigeons, is not what we're commanded to do anymore. No, the sacrifices we're to give to the Lord entail our words and songs, our actions and our resources. I don't know about you, but honestly, I am relieved that every week I do not have to drag a goat in here, slaughter it, slit its throat, have the blood drain out, and butcher it. Sorry for the graphicness. <laughs> but the sacrifices that we get to and must offer up to the Lord are no less weighty than bringing an animal in here, killing it, and burning it. The seriousness of our sacrifice has not decreased when compared to the taking the life of an animal to show our devotion to the Lord. It is life and death. It is deadly serious, the sacrifices that we are to give. Just as an example, when King Saul disobeyed the Lord's command and attempted to placate God in his disobedience by offering animal sacrifices, this is what the prophet Samuel responded in a blithering way on behalf of God. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So these are sacrifices we're not supposed to give to the Lord anymore. What are we supposed to give to the Lord instead? Well, Hebrews lists a couple things. The first is worship. Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So God, through the mouth of the prophet Hosea, conveys that he no longer desires animal sacrifice, but knowledge and acknowledgement of God. This is a weighty, weighty calling upon us. Do not take it lightly. This is what obedience and sacrifice looks like, among other things, to worship God. I don't know if you were here a couple weeks ago when Pastor Chris was talking about the revival of worship, but I loved what he said on that topic. He, says, he said that we are commanded to praise the Lord. And the author of Hebrews qualifies praise to be the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. When we worship the Lord, we acknowledge and lift up his name. Just as a side note, one of the things Pastor Chris said is even if you don't sing well, sing loud. And honestly, I think he was talking about me. I sit right there, so I'm like two rows behind him, so he can hear me every week when I sing. I do not sing on key. You can ask my wife. We're working on it, but I'm not there yet. So are we supposed to worship alone? No. In verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Again, there's the weighty obligation and the fullness of joy in these actions. We worship the Lord and we bring before him sacrificial work and giving of resources together. We keep his commands together, like these commands here, that our joy may be complete and we may abide in his love. For John 15, 10 and 11 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So believer, as we seek the city, this is a promise that as we worship the Lord, as we serve him, as we give to him, our joy may be full. So even as we follow our leaders and sacrifice and obey them, as we expect the citylessness and the outcastness, which is a word, of following the Lord, our joy may be complete. I love one, another thing that Pastor Chris said a couple weeks ago in giving, in that I canceled the recurring donation that I have set up through Vertical. And instead, I go in every two weeks and I give intentionally because that is one way that I can offer up praise to the Lord. Instead of letting it happen, don't have to think about it. I thought that was great because then it happened every week. But how much more is God glorified in my intentional giving? How much more is God glorified in your intentional service? So as an MC as a family, as a church, when we serve other people, God is glorified, and that is a way that we can seek his city. So to, con con excuse me. So to conclude, my time in Amman had been short. I was there for six weeks. It was a confirming time for me, and it was a beautiful time. I felt so alien, but so at home. It left me hungry to go back to that part of the world. For a longer time, in order to share the gospel with people who otherwise had no access to it. I had learned the basics of survival in that city, and I was able to, to an extent, thrive there during that short period of time. But living in the city of God is about so much more than survival. 
We have to learn to live as natives of that city now before we fully get there. And these are some of the ways that we do it. We imitate our leaders, we expect the outcasts, and we embrace it, and we serve the Lord through worship, through giving, and through time. Let's pray.